0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This program is brought to you by Joule, sous vide by Chef Steps. Jewel takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. The topic? Restaurants and rules. Some rules are based on religion. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant, a shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef. While other rules promote health and safety. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food food lovers. Some restaurant rules fall outside the domain of the kitchen. All civil rights issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom. For more, tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Last week, the day after Thanksgiving, U.S. government agencies released the much-anticipated Fourth National Climate Assessment, which assesses the state of the climate across the U.S. It's safe to say that the report's findings were bleak. Uh, It stated in clear terms that without substantial and sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, climate change will hurt people, economies, and resources across the country. Joining the show today to discuss the effects that the report's authors say climate change will have on our food and ag systems specifically, is Marcia DeLong. Marcia is a senior scientist in the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where she conducts scientific research and analyzes identifying practices that lead to healthy and sustainable food and farming systems. Marcia, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay, before we dig into this topic, can you just tell us a little bit more about the Union of Concerned Scientists and what the organization does?
3: Absolutely. Um, So the Union of Concerned Scientists is a national nonprofit organization. Uh, We were founded nearly five decades ago by scientists at MIT, and our mission is really to put science into action. So we work to develop and implement um, innovative solutions to some of our planet's most urgent problems, and those are uh, included but aren't limited to combating global warming uh, and also developing a more sustainable food system. So that's what we'll be talking about today.
2: Yeah, and I, I feel like now more than ever, your organization is really needed <laughs> to help
3: we keep ourselves busy. <laughs> yes,
2: to, you know, put out facts and help people um, make people believe them. Um, Okay, so I'm going to ask like a really, really basic question for anyone who is uh, confused by the terminology and the kind of process by which climate change works. Um, You know, I mean, I, I I think that it might be worth talking about this since we have a president who makes statements like brutal and extended cold blast could shatter all records, whatever happened to global warming. Um, So with that in mind, that's where we are as a country right now. That's where we're at. So with that in mind, can you give us a a brief overview of what's entailed with climate change? How does it work? And what are the main drivers?
3: Sure. So climate change is really referring to changes in average weather conditions over the long term. So we're talking about decades or more. Um, So while weather is what we experience on a shorter time frame and we want to know if it's going to be hot or cold, if it's going to be rainy or dry and whether there's a chance of a big storm, climate change is really thinking about those long-term shifts in what we experience in any particular place. Um, so today we, we know we're experiencing climate change in a, in a variety of ways, and that's what we'll be talking about. Um, just one of those ways is that average surface air temperatures have increased by about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit over the last 115 years, so that's just one example of a, of a long term shift in, in our climate. Um, okay. In terms of the driver, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the drivers, I mean, this is what we know is um, human activities. So it's emissions of heat trapping greenhouse gases, uh, and that's from fossil fuel combustion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, just you know, what we do every day to use the energy that we use when we're burning fossil fuels, we're putting more of these heat-trapping gases into into the atmosphere. Um, when we do that, that prevents um, it, it helps absorb heat in the atmosphere near the Earth's surface. That prevents heat from escaping into space. Um, we want a certain amount of that to happen. We want a habitable climate. But when we keep increasing those concentrations of greenhouse gases, then it, it means that it's, it's warming. It's actually um, changing what we experience here on Earth.
2: Okay. All right. Thank you. That was super, <laughs> super helpful. Great summary. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what about this, and um, in, in think about this report, where did it come from? Like who mandated it and for what purpose?
3: Yeah. So this report is um, mandated by Congress. Um, it's meant to be released about every four years. Um, and it's meant to assess the, the past, the present, and the future of, of climate change, what it means to uh, us in the United States. Um, it's actually produced by 13 federal departments and agencies. Um, they make up a thing called the U.S. Global Change Research Program. Mm-hmm. Um, so this includes USDA, NOAA, Department of Defense, Department of Energy, all the agencies that probably come to mind mm-hmm. Um and uh, and through this, so we have this this giant this group, and then these 13 agencies, uh, and then within that, about 300 federal and non-federal authors actually contributing to this report. So wow. it's a big it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big it's, thing.
2: it's quite um, it's, it's it's a lot of pages. <laughs> it is a lot of pages. 1600 of them. Um, okay, so and then what are the main kind of. Um, Chapters and topics that the report covers. It seems very I'm in,
3: comprehensive. I'm impressed that you even know how many pages it is. <laughs> uh, I think the easier way to navigate this report um, is online, and then you kind of, kind of can click through the different chapters. So for anyone who's listening, um, it's not you know just one thick PDF really that you're that you're looking at. You're actually um, kind of having an experience in which you can uh, find your way around. The, what the report is talking about and it's so it does a lot of different things it gives an overview of of the report because it needs several different <laughs> levels of summaries um it gives an overview of of a, how a lot of our different sectors and land use types are um are being affected by climate change so that means water energy land use forests, ecosystems our coasts oceans um urban areas transportation air quality human health, you know, pretty much everything, everything right?
2: Yeah.
3: I mean, everything is being affected in a different way. And so it was really important for this report to to um, have a way for people who were like, oh, well, what's going on with transportation to be able to take a look.
2: Quickly, um, yeah.
3: It also, what was one of the things that was um, new in this particular Report. It's the fourth one of the series of national climate assessments to date. Is that it really went deep into regions? So it had a separate mm. chapter um, for of um, different regions across the U.S. Uh, and that's why it has 29 chapters this time around, partly because of these regional additions.
2: Yeah, and this is the second um, volume of this of the fourth assessment, right? Mm-hmm. And the first yeah. one, what, what was the, the first one? I think it was from 2017. What, did, what are the differences between the two?
3: Right. So this time they, they decided to do this in, in two volumes because what they wanted to do is to actually release the, the Climate Science Foundation first. Mm-hmm. So um, the basics of what we know about physical science, the physical science of climate science. Uh, to come out in its own report, which was in November of, of last year, and then this new report, Volume Two, is really about saying, "Okay, now that we know that these things are happening with climate science, what does that mean for impacts and risks for the United States? And then also, what does that mean for what we can do to adapt and what we can do to mitigate?"
2: Okay. Um, all right. That is that's really helpful. So this is different than the report that came out in October. Um, by the U.N., right? Also Obviously different than Yes, yes. Also,
3: also different than that. Yes, that was... Uh, a lot of reports
2: these days. Uh, a lot yes. of re- it's almost <laughs> like something needs to happen. Like, this is a really big deal.
3: <laughs> I will tell you, if anyone out there is having trouble keeping track of these, you are not alone. Yeah. I mean, I work on this every day, and it's, it's, it's even hard to sort out all of the different things that are coming out from the different groups and organizations. But yes, it's a it's clearly it's a steady drumbeat, um, and clearly we need to be paying attention.
2: <laughs> yeah, hopefully this um, report kind of gets the job done. You know, I have to say, like, it was dumped, right? This report was dumped, and my understanding reading it was it was just, like, kind of rushed. Like, all of a the sudden, they, the government was like, no, no we're going to release it now in, like, five days. You know, the authors didn't have even a lot of heads up about when it was going to be released. And then it was, like, dumped on a day where... It was peop- people were expected to maybe not be paying attention, and of course, those are those are my opinions um, on how the report was released. But it seems to me that this kind of struck a chord in a way that I haven't seen um, recently with uh, you know putting this information out there. Have you found that to be to be true in terms of the response, public response to it?
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to know exactly what happened with a report and and when it was released and why, yeah. <laughs> but it, but, but I think, you know, the, the bottom line is that it, regardless of when it was released, it has, it has received a lot of response. Um, I think that that, that says a lot that, that something like this is now um, headline news for a lot of different um, groups and organizations and, you know, and that's, I think as someone who's been working on this for a while, I think that that's reassuring.
2: Yeah. Are you like, finally? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes,
3: yeah, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, of of course, there's going to be a report like this, or of course, people are going to talk about it. But then, you know, thinking back, it actually hasn't been that there's been so much visibility for yeah. something like this. And um, and yeah, I'm I'm really I'm really relieved that people are paying attention.
2: Definitely. Okay, so um, before we kind of dig into the chapters on food and agriculture and the effects of climate change will have on that I'm wondering if you can kind of just outline some of these big overall takeaways that the report said um in terms of like the uh, the effects of of climate change what we're seeing
3: sure I mean I know that's I know that's like really hard to do (laughs) yeah
2: so again like a thousand plus page report I'm like can you just summarize it in like five bullets for us
3: (laughs) well i've so uh, i'll just reiterate what I said before. if anybody is actually interested in anything in particular about climate change impacts, then you should take a look at this amazing report online because you can pretty easily navigate around to the issue areas that are yeah. that are most interesting are the regions um, but i'll just share a few things that that struck me or stood out to me yeah I mean one is just that the the very uh, unambiguous clear statement that human activity primarily burning fossil fuels is causing climate change. There is no credible alternative, you know, so right. this is just up there clear uh, and, and reminding us that there's been this average temperature rise of 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which, you know, might not sound like a lot. Like, again, if you're thinking about like the weather, and know it's a little more or less this day, right. but when you think about this long-term climate shift, this is a big deal. Um,
2: Be- yeah. Because, <laughs> because of the effects, like, I mean, can you just like spell that out a little bit like it's a big deal because um, yeah why
3: uh, well, I mean because because it's it's this is the this is the average change, so this means um more of the more of those extreme warm days more often um mm-hmm. it means it also means that we're gonna have uh, we're having experiencing changes in rainfall, and that I mean even little tiny changes like um. Uh, just a, a shift in growing seasons because we're going to be talking about agriculture, right, can, mm-hmm. can wreak havoc on a, on a crop. So if you're just going to see a shift in a growing season of a few days, but you have a crop that is, you know, kind of bred to to be able to work with um, that region, then then this is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. So it's that a- average change is the middle of like a low extreme and a high extreme. Right. And it's those extremes that are the real problems. Got
2: it. Okay. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Um so then, you know, in addition to kind of just this basic review of, of, the, of the changes that we're seeing, I think um, it was really striking that the report talked about the economic losses that are going to be really significant, um, that are already significant, but they have predicted that um, the impact of climate change could exceed $100 billion annually by wow. the end of the century. So, wow. I mean, and, and remembering that, you know, they were trying to be conservative – um, there's a lot of uncertainty. So 100 billion dollars annually—that's like that's a lot—and yeah. uh, we may be underestimating our risk. Um, and then, you know, just this kind of clear point that um, everyone in America, well, we're, our health is at risk, um, and many populations are going to be particularly vulnerable. Um, we're, we're talking about heat waves. Um, Maybe changes that that are going to affect allergies, make allergies worse. Vector-borne diseases like Zika and West Nile becoming worse. Just many things that you don't really necessarily think about when you think, oh, a little more heat. Mm-hmm. Um, we were um, we're we're talking about we're talking about livelihoods. We're talking about health. We're talking about billions of dollars to the economy mm-hmm. um, on top of kind of the. The weather and climate changes that first come to mind.
2: Does the report talk at all about uh, the effect on national security that it might have?
3: Um, you know, that's not the part that I
2: right. dug yeah, into yes. in great I'm just, detail. But, yeah.
3: but I, but I mean, even I, I, I think it does touch on this quite a bit in a variety of different ways. And maybe it's it's the little pieces throughout the report that that one needs to look at to realize, like right. Our infrastructure is at risk. Our health is at risk. Yeah. Our food security is at risk. Migration. So yeah.
2: yeah, everything. Um,
3: and yeah, this is on the radar of the
2: military. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the, the big. <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, that's like a really important point, right? I mean, it's the same um, that you wouldn't necessarily like think about. The same way, by the way, obesity is on the radar of the, you know, of the, of the military because yep. we have a lot of um, people in this country who aren't physically able to Fight. Okay. So, but I digress. Um, But (laughs) I digress. It's related. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. So let's, so let's get into, you know, the, the stuff that you really focused on, which is the effects um, on our food and agriculture system. I would like to kind of take some of these one by one. um, But like, you know, just one of the things that you wrote about was food insecurity. So Mm -hmm. can you just kind of explore, uh, help us just understand the connection?
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the top message in the in the agriculture and rural communities chapter, because that was what it was. It also it wasn't just about agriculture. It was also about rural communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the top message that these authors came up with was that climate change is going to reduce agricultural productivity. Um, this is going to be because of droughts, wildfli- wildfires, wildfires. Um, just uh, the, de- the continued depletion of water supplies, increased weed and pest pressures, um, and, you know, the, our, the gradual changes in seasons combined with the the more frequent or intense extreme events that we expect to see. So, you know, I mean, it's we're going to be in a situation where we're, we're probably going to be growing less food. Our commodity crops are expected to be less productive. Um, and... You know that and and it's probably going to be that more often there's going to be these uh, extreme events that wipe out crops at times that we can't predict and we can't expect and we can't plan around. Um, so there's there's that too. So when you think about all of these different pieces uh, of of ways in which the agri- the US agricultural system could be uh, really hit, on, from a product productivity standpoint mm-hmm. um, and you recognize that even today food insecurity affects 12 percent of u.s households i mean we're not helping ourselves out right yeah. we yeah. have we have a big problem with food insecurity um now we're saying hey there's going to be hits to to agricultural productivity on many of our primary crops uh, and some of those are just going to be gradual and some of those are going to be unexpected un, you know disasters that are difficult to plan for.
2: Um, we are though at a at a point of incredible productivity though right now aren't we? I mean we keep producing more and more and more. So what yeah. is the is this going to be like a gradual decline or just kind of all at once?
3: No, I think mean, this is I, this is gradual, but I, but again I think it's it's a combination of um, it's you know it's it's just it's a combination of the fact that we're going to have these slow gradual changes shifts in what we can grow where um, how well it's going to grow and then uh, and then you know an increasing number of disasters in in which case you know we're going to there's going to be major crop failures and we're going to have to figure out what to do about that now some of those might not be directly affecting the food supply or maybe we have enough food you know but mm-hmm. but they are going to be affecting um affecting livelihoods they're going that's going to affect rural populations um we know that food insecurity is not just caused by um a lack productivity, of productivity yeah. a lack of food and yeah. so there are those there is all those things to consider as well i mean we the so ultimately this is a huge strain on our food system which involves a lot of people in this country um so it's partly about yes we're going to be growing less food probably um, also, we're going to have less food when we expect to have food because of the disaster kind of quality of a lot of these uh, these events that are becoming more problematic with climate change. Mm-hmm. And then there's just the strain of climate change on everything um, and, and how much is expected to devastate communities. And then, you know, agricultural communities, rural communities being some of the most vulnerable, as this report put it.
2: Um, what about the? Uh, what are some of the crops that the report points out that will be particularly affected?
3: Yeah. Well, so uh, uh, a lot of the commodity crops that just um, the the ones that kind of come come to mind, like you know, corn, corn soy, soy, wheat, oats, um, cotton, silage. I, I mean, the other thing is that the that we don't want to lose sight of is. Um, this risk of wildfire for a mm-hmm. lot of our grazing land, and so um, that's kind of you don't always necessarily think of that as a crop, but that's uh, really a source for for food and for the livelihoods of ranchers as well.
2: Yeah, I bet people in California don't forget about
3: yeah. fire <laughs> yeah. right
2: now. As mm-hmm. um, yeah, so but no, that's that's a really good point. Um, I think that so so it's basically. I mean, what would would it be? In terms of like the commodity, what were the effects of com- commodity crop um, decreased production really have on this country? Like, would that have more of an impact on um, our international, uh, le- like on the international food supply, um, like kind of decreasing, or would that be more of an effect on the U.S. economy? Like, can we just dig into kind of what that what that those repercussions would be?
3: Oh sure. I mean, I think that with the agriculture, um uh, with agriculture, it's a lot there's a lot of uncertainty. There's just a lot in it because it's I don't know. I maybe I sometimes think it's particularly complex, but maybe I just know it so well so I know its complexities.
2: Yeah. Um
3: yeah, so I mean, US agriculture, US is a is a major exporter of agricultural goods, so there's, you know, anything that and we are a major importer. Mm-hmm. You know, we export a lot so um, for sure the countries who are importing our goods would be affected if we're growing less Um, but that kind of goes both ways so um, there's this piece about trade and uncertainties in trade you know, and then we don't, you know, we don't necessarily know how um, production and consumption overall are going to be affected with climate change. You know, if you start to say, oh, OK, well, we've, we've lost this crop or now we can't grow this here anymore. There's major shifts that occur. How um, countries, regions, um, farming communities are going to respond and then kind of what that means for um yeah for for, for on with for anything really is is really up in the air. so I think you know what we have to keep in mind is um, there's these impacts kind of carry a lot of side effects that we don't fully understand, but we do know from what we do know from what the climate science says um and from what's what's happening on the ground right now that that we're dealing with some um, major changes ahead and um, it it can be hard to it can be hard to adapt. It can be hard to to make change in in agricultural systems in any systems. And so, if we want to be able to to um, be prepared for whatever is coming our way, then we need to start to take some more action.
2: Yeah. Are there particular I mean communities or um, regions that will be affected more than others. Like I'm imagining the coasts, but I'm wondering if there are some things that maybe might not come to mind immediately that really, really will have, will be impacted negatively.
3: Yeah. I mean, the coast with, with sea level rise, actually, there's some really interesting research that has been coming out that's just saying, well, we have farms along like the Eastern shore of Maryland, for example. Mm -hmm. And as, uh, sea level rises, these farms are are literally, we're losing them underwater, and there's salt intrusion that comes. So that's, you know, one thing that really, I think, matches with the um, with the vision of, like, what, what climate change is and means. But um, our Midwest, you know, that's the, the place where we grow a lot of our corn and soybeans, and, and the report is very clear that corn and soybeans um, are at risk uh, with climate change. And so there's uh, clear statement in the in the report that says that this is going to be a, a major factor in declines in the productivity of U.S. agriculture in the Midwest
2: yeah.
3: um, with I, the fires, you know, uh, the grassland fires that and the droughts that have been striking the the Great Plains, in the Midwest, and California, and we expect these to increase. Um, but really, I think that when you ask about what regions of the country will be more affected, or how I mean really nobody's getting the way without being affected yeah. i mean that's what that's what really stands out to me,
2: yeah um what are farmers' attitudes towards climate change like do they accept that it's real and caused by humans or um do they even call it climate change like where are they on this on this side of this on this issue?
3: I think it would be a mistake to think about farmers as one uniform group, yeah, I think that's kind of my my initial takeaway um certainly i but you know it's clear that there are farmers out there who are um really clear that that climate change is is affecting them and that they want to take some action um in response so two groups that that come to mind of two groups of farmers that that come to mind is being really active in this space are the National Farmers Union—they mm-hmm. um, actually have a Climate Leaders community, so they are fully recognizing that you know farmers and ranchers are, are at the front lines of climate change and working to figure out, uh, you know, how we how we combat this, how how what farmers can be doing, um, and then the National Young Farmers Coalition, I and mean, they also they have um, done a lot of of work on trying to figure out what. Uh, young farmers need and how they can better advocate for them. And they uh, had a survey out, a report out in 2017, and it was pretty clear that uh, a lot of their members who responded to this survey um, have been seeing uh, unpredictable weather, um, severe storms, and so on, and that they attribute these changes to climate change. So, um, do they rep- Do these farmers represent all farmers? No, by no means. Um, but, but. I think it's you know important to realize that there's there's farmers in different parts of the country. There's farmers on different types of farms and sizes of farms and in different communities. And um, that just that that changes that that really changes things.
2: Um, what so the report offers a number of kind of suggested next steps and and um, ways that we can really help kind of mitigate at least the um, like the uh, the the uh, impact like the the size of the impact um of climate change so what are some the, okay wait let me <laughs> <laughs> let me just start that question over again um the report talks about like suggested solutions things that people can do and that farmers specifically can do now to help mitigate like long-term seriously negative effects of climate change so what are some of those um suggested solutions or guidelines that that is entailed in the report Talked about in the mm-hmm.
3: yeah. Uh, so really, I mean, it boils down to you know farmers being able to choose what they can grow where, um, what they use to grow, what they grow where, right? so what they what their inputs are, like the fertilizers and pesticides, water, um, you know, whether or not they they can adopt some adopt some new technologies,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and then just kind of management practices, and a lot of the management practices that that uh, are recommended in this report and, and in many other reports, as we mentioned, there are lots of reports, mm-hmm. um, are things like crop rotations, cover crops, um, and, oh, you know, for, well, for, for how, you, how you manage what's growing on your farm, and then things like irrigation management or precision management or figuring out, like, how best you can put less fertilizer and the fertilizer in just the right place on, on your farm. On, you know across your crop field so that it's it's well matching and that you don't have too much where you don't need it which would, which is just helping to make sure that the the impacts of of any new extreme weather um, or changes in the weather and climate don't exacerbate problems that farmers are already dealing with like what, with water quality and water conservation and so on
2: okay so yeah I was gonna say like okay so pick Crop rotation. What is the connection between crop rotation and, you know, reducing vulnerabilities to climate change? Just, okay. just, yeah. yeah. Can you just dig into that a little bit or, and, yeah. and like, and like how that will help mitigate, um, you know, how, what farmers can do to kind of not only like safeguard against, um, what the effects, the changes will have, but also help prevent further, you know, increase in greenhouse, uh, like emissions,
3: yeah, yeah, right. Because there's two pieces of this. One is that um, you know, it'd be great, it, and we need for for farmers and ranchers and agriculture and the food system as a whole to reduce their own uh, footprint, climate change footprint, because mm-hmm. agriculture in the U. S. contributes nine percent of of our U.S. emissions, and so there's a real opportunity there. It's mm-hmm. a real opportunity to just reduce emissions. Um, but then, and then the other piece is that that uh, agriculture can also, farmers can help um, build. They they can actually remove carbon from the atmosphere. So carbon dioxide is is one of these big greenhouse gases, right? And so. But that's carbon, and there's a carbon cycle, and the carbon can be in the atmosphere, carbon can be in soils, carbon can be in plants, Um, and so if if farmers can get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and into plants and into soils, then that can also help mitigate climate change. And then there's the the layer of adaptation, which is really like absolutely critical, and what we need to be making sure we're making progress in right away, because. Uh, farmers are already facing the impacts of climate change, so um, adaptation is key. While we mitigate, you know, while we mitigate, we need to be adapting, and vice versa. So, crop yeah.
0: rotations—something
3: mm-hmm. um, like crop rotations—what um, we're, we're really talking about, instead of growing one crop year after year in the same place, to be really thinking strategically about growing, um, mixing that up, and growing. More than one crop in the same place and rotating it from year to year, so that um, so so that the there's actually one thing to I mean to realize about crops is that they they kind of give and take different things from the soil mm-hmm. um, and from the environment, and so if you if you rotate crops, then you can get a little you can um, bring some balance to that farming system. So um, what we want to what we want to be doing to mitigate climate change is to get. Uh, to really build soil health, um, to make sure that there are that we're we have crops in that rotation that are kind of giving back more of the soil than they take. So, for example, bringing nitrogen in nitrogen fixing crops so that we maybe don't need to use so much fertilizer, which is associated with greenhouse gas emissions, um, or um, yeah. So okay, I think I'm rambling a little bit on this. No, no, this so many is great. Exciting things to
2: talk about. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's helpful to kind of you know make the connections because we talk a lot about um, things like like the importance of cover crops, you know, but it's like actually making the connection in terms of like the the full list of benefits that could come out of something. So maybe seemingly simple. Um, what is the in terms of Making these um, changes, like, have you? What What are kind of farmers' attitudes? Like, um, new practices. I think anything new introduction, introducing to the farming community can sometimes be met with um, like a little reticence, right? Like, it's it's a hard enough job in and of itself at right now, and r- margins are super like razor thin. And so, when you kind of come at farmers like, "Hey, I think you should be doing this," which might cost, you know more in some way, um, there can be some apprehension. So have, you know, in your work with the community, have you found that there is a little bit of a reticence or are farmers pretty um, welcoming of making some of these changes?
3: I, you know, I mean, I think that the bottom line, as you said, is um, these are, there's risk involved with bringing on new practices. There's, know, there's, there's sometimes there's new equipment, there's upfront costs. There's a transition time for making things work, right? Like you might try a crop rotation. You don't really know until you've, you're three or four years through if it's really working working for you, or if it's you know you have all the kinks worked out in uh, in your management style. And so, um, so I mean, I think we have to recognize that there's that there's a lot of risk involved. Um, what we can help, uh, and I think, there's a lot of different ways that we can help to mitigate those risks. As a you know, as a as a country, as a community, I mean, we have um, research that can help set, show that oh, these practices work really well, and we're continuing to make them work better. And not only that, but they we're going to make sure that they work in your region, in your microclimate. They're going to work for you. Um, we can provide technical assistance so that. Um, when you're having a problem that you can, we can provide support mm-hmm. and then, then, then we also can be trying to find ways of uh, through like the farm bill which is the other big thing happening <laughs> right now and yeah. I know your listeners have heard about that recently but um, thinking about like the safety net for when something goes wrong you know how can we make sure that that farmers have have a safety net so that that, that through crop, crop insurance or whatever Um so, but the problem is that we you know there's a lot of weak spots in all of those pieces right now. You know, we haven't necessarily been uh, in the United States doing a great job of um, fully funding our public research um, in, in for climate change and agriculture in particular, for sustainable agriculture, for agriculture as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a problem. Um, if there's not technical assistance available, which you know, which are so issue. yeah, so little.
2: I think like the primary technical assistance available to farmers right now is through the actual pesticide companies itself, which is so ironic and unhelpful. I imagine in, in a lot of ways, when you try and make um, when you're trying to make sustainability improvements, um, yeah. so yeah, te- technical assistance certainly sounds like it sh- should be much right. more of a priority.
3: Yeah, I mean, so I guess all this is just to say, I mean, if farmers are reluctant to try new things in the environment that we have, set, uh, you know, available for them right now, who can blame them, right? right? I yeah. mean, it's there's there's um, amazing farmers out there who've been trying new things. I think cover crops is one that you know, it's, cover crops is um, pretty straightforward. Right, you want to when during the time of the year when you're not. Um, planting or having your, your primary commodity crop or your primary crop out there, plant a cover crop so they can keep the soil covered, keep mm-hmm. uh, live roots in the ground. Um, and if you can make that work, then it's just instead of having a bare field, you have a field with cover crops, right? And there's been a lot of interest in um, getting cover crops rolled out over more of the country. And so there's been more incentives and there's been more support and there's been more stories. But, but even that, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, there's just there's just so many barriers that that that's what I think it, we can all be working on is trying to figure out how do we break down some of those barriers because we're this can be considered a big ask, you know. There's mm-hmm. a huge opportunity for farmers. I think uh, at least that's what it looks like from from the science and from the the farmers who have shared their stories. It, there's just really a lot of things to be excited about, but. Um, you know, w- but, we, but we have to realize also the barriers that are involved and the challenges mm-hmm. and that the system that we have today in this country is just not necessarily um, supporting <laughs> that kind of transition, right? Yeah. There's
2: what is, work to do. What is the role that industry can play in helping to support um, farmers to make some of these changes?
3: I mean, industry uh, sources a lot of products from a lot of farmers and ranchers. And so, you know, they have a they have an opportunity to um, set some standards and or you know, provide their own incentives to farmers or technical assistance and support um, to help the farmers who are farming the products that, that they buy to make sure that, that those are produced in a way that, you know, is in line with the... Um, the vision and the mission and and the ideals of that industry so uh, and as you've said i mean a lot of times farmers have very close connections with industry representatives and so that's that's an opportunity too there's a connection there between um farmers and and other folks who are able to help communicate you know what new practices new opportunities that can help that farm thrive so there's I think that there's a there's a role for um, for industry to play. You know, there there is an opportunity for them in this space. Not to mention the fact that the the report shows that, that their businesses are at risk.
2: Right. Right. Anything? Well, yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's really that's a really important point. Okay, we're going to have to take a really quick uh, commercial break, um, but stay tuned because we'll continue our conversation.
1: Okay. This program is brought to you by Joule Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real life Joule user. When you cook with Joule, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Parrot app is intuitive to use and preloaded with all the recipes you'll need. And it has a great visual doneness guide. Joule is awesome for holiday cooking. It's easy to cook for a crowd, and it's perfectly precise, so you can focus on entertaining without worrying about checking food temps, while Joule does all the work. You can try out new cuts fearlessly. One of the best things I ever made sous vide was a juicy, tender heritage goose with juniper berries, and it was life-changing. And pro tip, Jewel is small and packs easily, so you can sneak it along on your holiday travels to be this season's food hero everywhere you go. With Juul, you get perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Juul and use code HRN as in Heritage Radio Network to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code HRN. And happy holidays from all of us at Team HRN.
2: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Marcia DeLong, about the new, um, the fourth national climate assessment and what it means for food and farms. Um, okay, so we're talking about kind of what support, where kind of farmers can get the support to make some of these changes. Um, what about the role of government? I mean, has there, we had a former uh, EPA, head of the EPA, I believe was like not totally sold on the fact that. Um, humans are causing global warming. Um, So that's something. So I'm just just wondering like where kind of what the regulatory landscape looks like right now for championing policies that could um, affect climate change.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, climate change is, and climate change mitigation and adaptation for that matter are so wrapped up in um, just, finding ways to have a more resilient, sustainable farm and food system, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can look at it through the lens of, of climate change, but you can also just look at it through the lens of, like, we need to be making progress on building more resilient farms, dealing with these other issues which are all tied into which is the water quality issues and um, preserving our limited water resources, which we've been tapping out, you know, in, in recent years. So, um so that, I mean, that's just kind of like an interesting framing for thinking about what can our government be doing about these challenges
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, right now. Is the, we're kind of nearing the end, hopefully, of the the farm bill this next farm bill cycle. Yeah. Um, but you know, the farm bill is a is a big place where, whether we like it or not, there are policies all over the farm bill which are, um, re- which are really tightly implicated in in climate change and agriculture. It, mm-hmm. it helps determine. What our research budgets are, what um, what our conservation, what kind of conservation programs are available to farmers, farmers and ranchers who want to be adopting the kinds of practices that we talked about um, for a whole slew of reasons, um, and again, those those safety nets. So, um, you know, that's just one one of the places, but it's a big one where where at least kind of the roadmap is is set up for how we deal with climate change in in um, and farming.
2: Yeah, and right now I believe there are some pretty big cuts proposed to um, conservation programs. So,
3: yeah, we've been uh, carefully watching the conservation stewardship program in particular, which is the, uh, a holistic stewardship program which really tries to take um, some of the best stewards of the land and on our farms and ranches and, and help them, like, even level up and do even better. Um, and, you know, help us set some of those examples for how, how we get our, you know, the most functional resilient farms. And unfortunately that one has been one that's, that's been ah, really, we haven't really known where that's going to go.
2: Yeah. Um, I should have asked this before. Um, but I, I'm wondering like what kind of crops, if the report talks about what kind of crops we should be growing more of in this country to help us become more resilient um, I mean like reducing meat consumption seems like probably a pretty obvious one but like what I mean what about are there other co- crops like hemp for instance that we should kind of shift our production more towards?
3: Yeah you know I mean I don't think the report really pointed to specific crops that we should be growing or not growing um, it's more about where they're growing and what management we use to grow them mm-hmm. um, but but I think you know a uh, uh, something for us to think about is just how do we get diversity back into our farming system? Because it's the diversity that's going to help get us through the challenges that lie ahead. Um, so it, that means diversity at all scales. So what should, there, should there be a short list of, you know, corn, soy, wheat, rice, sorghum, cotton, oats, silage that are like, okay, these crops are going to suffer and that means um terrible news for the agricultural sector. You know, it would be nice to to think about, like, how we can figure out how to get a more diverse suite of of crops out there on the landscape. But there's some in particular that have been, that are really cool, right? Like, there was a a great book by Liz Carlisle called um, Lentil Underground, and that was all about a story in Montana of, of lentil farmers who brought lentils into a crop rotation. So here's the crop rotation again. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that by, by doing this, they were able to rebuild soil health. Uh, lentils are one of these crops that uh, help get more nitrogen into, into soils and they're drought resistant. Um, so they can you know, create a more resilient Uh, Boost soil health, create a more resilient system, and also they're part of this diverse crop rotation. And and diversity is great from an economic standpoint. It's great Uh, risk risk reduction. um, And I think it would just set us up so much better.
2: Yeah. Certainly. Um, Okay. Well, I only have time for two more questions, but I want to know, are there, um, what kind of like current major initiatives do you have underway at UCS with regard to climate change in our food system and anything else about your work that you'd want our listeners to know about?
3: Oh well, um, I would direct your listeners to um, UCSusa.org uh, and browse our website because we are doing a lot of different work on, on food and agriculture, some of it's on climate change, but we also have an entire climate change and energy program that does a lot of different work on climate change, looking at sea level risk and renewable energy and, and so on. And so there's so many different pieces of this that we're doing uh, on our team. Uh, for food and environment you know we're just we're trying to understand the science of adapting to and mitigating climate change what having spongier soils can do for farmers and also the environment and and think about what the most innovative and smart policies and opportunities going forward will be
2: excellent okay and last question we've talked a lot about what farmers can do to mitigate the effects of climate change in our food system but what are some things that listeners can do right now
3: Yes, listeners can support those farmers. Support those farmers who are the ones who are working to build uh, resilience in their farming system, uh, working to hopefully help find climate change solutions. Um, You can support companies who are supporting those farmers. Um, You can educate yourself on kind of what a a climate-friendly diet is. Now, there's it's complicated. Um, but, and it's, you know, it's another avenue that we have in which we can help to reduce our, our own climate footprints And, you know, there's always the possibility and always really critical to ask our decision makers to take these issues very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need more people talking about climate change and agriculture and our food system. Um, uh, but I'm just going to bring it back to support those farmers who are, the ones who are trying to find solutions for climate change.
2: And how do we how do we find them?
3: <laughs> I think I, you know. I think there's a we have a challenge ahead of ourselves to figure out how we those of us who are not farming can reconnect ourselves to farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of farmers out there who are working really hard to try to find solutions, and they're they're trying to find the eaters. You know, yeah. um, so you go to your farmers market, try you know, or look up. You know, do some research into uh, what are the what are the opportunities for for you to be getting food through food hubs or through CSAs, through farmers markets, but mm-hmm. you know, also even your local grocery store, right? It's, it doesn't all need to be limited to these other uh, more intimate settings. But but everywhere we go, we're eating, and everywhere we're eating, there's there's some farmer who's producing something that is. Doing it in a way that's really trying to be um, part of a solution for climate change and part of a solution for our food system as a whole because it's um, climate change is huge and we need to solve that problem. We need the ones who we need. We need to be supporting the farmers who are working on the climate change, water quality, water conservation, and just building resilient communities. Really. Uh, working to um, improve this, the strength of the communities, farming communities across the country.
2: So every time you eat, there's an opportunity to make a change. I love it. It's,
3: isn't that amazing?
2: Yes. Yeah. It's so great. It, I, I'm Yes, I'm really excited about that. And it's a message that we continue to kind of try and drive in this show, in particular, like just voting with your fork is one of the most powerful things you can do.
3: And you can also still vote. Yes, you and, support, you, can and you can also still vote. And so, the, I mean, the, the opportunities are just endless.
2: Yeah, just vote. Basically, just vote <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. in two different ways. All right. Well, this has been really interesting and informative. Marcia, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and um, unpack this report for us.
3: Thank you so much. This has been great.
2: Okay, we're going to leave it there. Um, one more thing before we... Totally wrap up for our New York based listeners. Um, Heritage's annual Winter in the Garden gala is happening tomorrow, December third. So, you ha- if you haven't bought your tickets, there's definitely still time. Use coupon code Eating Matters for ten percent off your ticket price. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. I'm Jenna Leut, and thank you for listening.